I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. Okay, so this morning on More Than Profit, I say morning because the interview's uh, in the morning, I am sitting down with uh, Brian Cornish, the founder and executive director of FinEquity. Uh, and I'm excited. I was personally one of this was personally one of my favorite uh, submissions, just because of the large problem that you're attempting to solve. And honestly, uh, not just the problem itself, but I, I didn't even realize this was a problem. Uh, and so I think even in reading your application and in talking with you through the process of the Reconstruct Challenge, I was made aware of things that I didn't even know existed. So, Brian, thank you for sitting down with me. Maybe first off, I, you know, I, I was going to say what FinEquity does, but tell us what does FinEquity do and and why is this a problem that a lot of times people don't even even know is, is out there for that people face? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, FinEquity is, was really created to address like the financial tolls um, of justice-impacted community members. And what that specifically looks like is um, – we currently focus on those who are coming home and they're going to go through financial barriers that they need support with. And one of the ones that we're focused on now is that um, a big portion of people coming home are actually credit invisible, haven't been able to establish credit profiles because they've been absent. Um, and they will run into like credit checks, all these blocks that are really important um, to things such as housing, employment, uh, utilities plans, all these things. Uh, we want to make it easier and streamline access to those services because they make sure that people who are coming home can stay home. Uh, so that's our focus now. But I think our larger vision is that uh, we do believe that there are a lot of um, unaddressed, unacknowledged financial hurdles that exist primarily in are even bigger as a result of you know, the United States' focus on mass incarceration um, and that there are those collateral consequences that people will usually talk about, but they we're starting to learn a lot more about the ones that are financial. How does um, you know incarceration impact people's earning wages over time? How does it impact their ability to access financial services? We're starting to get have more conversations around that, um, and so we're just glad to be a part of that conversation. That's cool. Well, I think... You know, so unpacking that a little bit, you talked about the credit score and, and that justice impacted persons uh, don't have a credit score mm-hmm. um, when they leave the system oftentimes. And I, that was the thing that was the most like, it's like, oh, of course, that makes sense. Totally. Because you build a credit score by having credit, using credit, spending, paying back. And I was like, wow, that's totally true. I mean, if someone is in the system for five years, 10 years, 15 years, that's a long period of time to not have a credit history. And then then you start to go down the list of things that are require, that require credit. Mm-hmm. You know, you go and you apply for an apartment. Yep. Well, they do a credit check. Yeah. You go to buy a car, credit check. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, uh, a segment of our population that is needing to reintegrate in a way that's positive so that they don't become one of the statistics on recidivism, which is high. Um, you can say, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable how this is a part of that uh, pipeline that we see oftentimes uh, where people just are just constantly in our justice system. I was, I was blown away by that. I mean, just, and I mean, there's all the, all of the issues with, with the credit score itself. We've talked about that on previous episodes of our podcast, just like what all goes into the credit score and how that has its own problems in our uh, financial system, but just not, not even to have that. Holy cow. That was, 
that was the thing that shocked me the most. And I was like, how, how simple. So where, where does FinEquity fit in addressing that today? Yeah. What are you guys, what are you focused on? Yeah. So we, we, um, we found out about this problem through focus groups. Uh, we were doing focus groups with justice impacted community members. People would come home, especially those in the shelter system. Um, and that's not to say that everyone who was you know, trying to was stuck in the shelter system was due to credit. A lot of times it's due to like, you know, housing availability and the affordability, all those things. But we had had someone who um, had won like a lottery for affordable housing, was going to leave the shelter after being there for, you know, 18 months um, and couldn't pass a credit check because uh, they had no credit. Because like you said, credit is one of those complicated things where you kind of have to have credit, like actually access credit to then be able to have more credit. And then it's just, it's a catch 22. Um, And so we started looking further into that and found out that it was something that happens to people who are incarcerated, but also something that happens to new Americans who come to the United States, who again, have nothing to really um, leverage because they haven't been here. Uh, And so we wanted to, we sought to kind of think about, okay, well, do we want to create our own solution to this or do we want to just get a good understanding of like leveraging others who have done maybe unique solutions and then make it make sense for our community, the community we serve. And so we went out and surveyed um, and talked to a lot of like other nonprofits um, in the financial inclusion space, um, and especially ones who were dealing with new Americans because it was like a related issue, which is like there are people who come here, uh, they want to be employed, uh, you know, maybe they are um, – they have different like immigration statuses, but their goal is to uh, work and like get access to assets, like you know, again, apartments, things like that, uh, transportation. So we thought, okay, well, what's being done in that area? Um, and that's how we ended up with our current solution, which is that um, sometimes people coming home, they don't find a good option to establish credit. They get turned away because either they're being told, yeah, you can get a credit card, but you got to put $300 down. Uh, or you, you can't get a credit card because you're too, you know, we just, we don't, there's, there's, you, you seem risky. Um, or you have to take out a really high interest loan just to build credit. Um, and, you know, maybe you're, 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 you're get, you'll build credit over time, but you'll be, you know, paying about $100, $200 for it. Um, so th- those were all like the options. Uh, and we found a very unique option um, done by a nonprofit called the International Rescue Committee. They have like a, f- a financial arm because they're really focused on, um, again, new, uh, new Americans and making sure that they can have all the services they need and their financial arm makes sure that they're financially included. Uh, and they were doing uh, what they would call like a no interest, no fee microloan to help jumpstart people's credit history and that people could continue uh, utilizing that microloan to pay it back and establish what is most important to the credit bureaus, which is repeat on-time payments. And that's the core. And that the amount didn't matter, that there was like a focus on these loans out there that people were selling saying, hey, go take out a $1,000 loan or $2,000 loan and pay it off and you'll establish credit. All that was just about the person who was offering it um, and wanting to charge interest on that high amount so that they could benefit from it. But in truth, it n- that didn't matter. So we ended up starting a similar model where we said, we're going to start with a $100 microloan. Uh, it's a cash loan that we provide. So we work with financial institutions who are mission aligned. 
Um, they donate capital to a fund that we have, and we use that fund to distribute. One of the ways we use it is to distribute these $100 microloans that people then um, can pay back uh, using our kind of automated repayment system that I have. So it just kind of checks their bank account, sees if it's available, uh, won't offer overdraft if it's not available. So that's one of the beauties of our system, um, and recollects that money. And every time it does, it reports that <clears throat> to the credit bureaus as on-time payments. And they can just continue to have that history going. The first time we do it, it's six months. If people um, have a really great experience with that, they can keep going. Um, so then they're just, again, establishing this history of creditworthiness uh, the cost being nothing to them, just their general participation and investment and like their future is what they're doing on their side. But we're handling like the credit uh, reporting side. And on top of that, uh, one of the great things about this program is that since the repayment is kind of going, um, happening, like kind of automatically through like a tech technical system, we're able to focus on the relationship building with the clients and figuring out if things do come up like other financial emergencies, how can we keep them on track with this microloan that they're paying off? So they're not um, saying, hey, I have money in my bank account that you guys put in there for my microloan, but I actually need to get to work. When a person is in that situation, of course, they're going to choose to go to work. And so we, we make sure that like financial emergencies as well, which is like kind of like, again, dealing with micro capital are, are addressed. So a person can be on a good fitting to continue on this like pathway towards uh, credit worthiness. So that's what we do now. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, and so you, so you start with the hundred and help me understand too, like, how does that how does that mature with this person as you're working with them? Uh, does that amount increase over time? Is that something where, you know, the goal would be at some point they've built up enough of a track record where they're now stable in the financial system? How, do, how does that transition work for, for that person that you're working with? Yeah, it can continue because really, again, the the amount, the credit bureaus aren't really looking at the amount. They're looking at the like repayment. So it can't, that consistency. So it can continue for as long as it makes sense to because each of the community members who are coming to us do have like a goal. Um, sometimes they'll state it explicitly during our intake about what they're looking for. A lot of them are thinking about um, transportation. A lot of them are thinking about home ownership with the family that they now have have once they've come out. And they really are saying like they'll admit it and say you know down the line I want to be able to right now I don't live with my kids because maybe I live in a halfway house like I want to be able to have a home um, that's my goal and they are some of them are definitely aware of like hey this seems like a far away goal and I I I'm a, you know, because of inequity or because of other sources, I've become aware of like how credit even impacts homeownership. So I want to start like, you know, actually investing in this, 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 this asset, which is, which is solid credit. Um, so I think for us, it depends on the goal. So what I'll say is the one where we increase the amount might be best for a person who wants to go after uh, auto lending. Um, and we, we are working with a partner for that because they have a really great model where they, they will increase the amount, uh, cause the amount being on the person's credit report, they're like, you know, basically managing much more money, um, is also setting them up for a lender who might want to lend to them. Uh, like an auto lender at a lower rate because they would then use that credit history that can, they can see and say, okay, this might be a reason to give this person a lower interest rate on an auto loan. 
Um, and so for that reason, I think that's the one where it's like it makes sense to keep going. Uh, so there are people in our program who will, after they finish the 100, will be offered a higher amount. Mm, that's cool. I think what, uh, so kind of going back to the origin, I think it's fascinating because I, I obviously I look and I did a little bit of research and just like, okay, who is Brian and, and different things. I've met you obviously through the reconstruct process as much as a person can meet you through an application. <laughs> uh, but on LinkedIn, I mean, your, your pathway, obviously there's, there's similar threads on, on justice and community and, and, um, and people and advocacy and awareness. Um, but it's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Uh, so you're a lawyer, went to Stanford, um, also, you know, interest in technology solutions, uh, led groups like clean slate DC. Um, I think it's fascinating for me anyways, that you literally kind of came up with this idea by doing focus groups. I love that. You know, I, you know, a lot of people I talked to and, and I did an interview the other day, they had a personal experience and that kind of put them into this pathway. Uh, and so, but you did, you were, you were rooted in the, in the community in which you were serving and then just saying, okay, what are, what are the problems? And can you talk, like, what did that process look like? So what were you doing? Why, why were you doing the focus groups? And then what were you hoping to to see out of those focus groups? Because I don't know if you went into it thinking you'd start FinEquity. Right. Yeah. And I um, I was a part of a program run by the Robin Hood Foundation um, that was focused on human-centered design. Okay. Um, I had learned about human-centered design when I was in law school, and it resonated with me because um, – uh, you know, one thing my LinkedIn doesn't show is that I, I kind of I grew up in the shelter system and kind of experienced different aspects of most of the the systems, the government systems that exist, whether it be any kind of food stamps program. Basically, most programs like I, I'm personally aware of them. And um, one of the things I hated even as a child um, was like that these policies and programs were seemed to be designed by people who didn't understand what it felt like to go through it, um, whether it was just like, you know, even food stamps where you have to kind of like certify that you still need food stamps. And then they like, if you don't, because they didn't get it or they sent it to the wrong place, they turn it off. Um, or, you know, same thing with the lights, they turn it off. They don't really understand like what that feels like. And then like what what might be wrong about the process to why people aren't recertifying. It's not like they no longer need food. There's usually like other things going on or maybe some kind of delivery issue where people have housing insecurity. So they're not actually getting the um, the mail. And so I, I from, from a really young age was just like it's really important that whatever you create is like created with people who actually experience it because you're not going to be able to tap into um, and design for them because you can't really understand that perspective you're going to be missing things so if you're not talking to them you're just going to be missing things so I've been like that for years and I think human-centered design just came in and said and really validated that and said like when we design things we put the person who we're designing for at the center we try not to we try to watch out for the fact that we might have biases that are relevant to like what what we've experienced and if we haven't personally experienced this issue we're biased or blind to things and I love that and so um I was <laughs> I was te I was teaching at the time I was actually uh 
but I was supposed to be on a path towards uh, towards being a law professor, and uh, and I was doing that for a bit, and I came across this program at the Robin Hood Foundation, which was like, spend a summer with us. We're going to do human-centered design. You're going to talk with community members and work with community members to create solutions to problems that currently exist, and you should come in not with a particular vision, um, because it's possible that that vision is kind of impacted by your own personal experience. It might have biases. So if I would have came in and been like, hey, we're going to create some kind of like, you know, I don't know, you know, legal procedure or something like that that's going to help people, like it would have just been heavily biased by my own personal experience. And I love that they told people to come in with no particular idea that you the goal was to like listen um, find solutions, and if you like pr- want to propose solutions, then vet them with the community, and just have this idea of like stakeholders are at every point pushing you along to say either we are, we agree with this or we're just not sure why you're doing that. Okay. And <clears throat> I love that. Uh, and so I was involved in that program. Definitely, again, was not did not have an understanding that I would launch for equity. I ended up with uh, being in a group um, that was all just like people who were. Uh, justice reform minded. We all ended up partnering together. So that was the thing that united us. We came from different backgrounds, but everyone was like, actually, one of the things about me is that even before this, like, you know, I care about uh, the justice system because I think it that has like racial and economic implications that impact my community or if I'm not directly impacted I see it and I really think it's a problem and so that's what united our team and so the focus was hey let's just put together focus groups go find use all of our you know relations that we had with community organizations so each of us knew other organizations who worked with justice impacted folks and we're like let's go put together focus groups uh, start to hear what's going on. And it wasn't even focused on finances. It was really broad at the time. So we heard many stories around kind of medical issues, things like that. Uh, and we ended up zeroing in on the financial aspects. One, it was the most surprising. And two, uh, it didn't seem like there was a great, like it seemed like when people told us there were already financial solutions, we, with the focus groups, we were like, well, there's some reason why it's not a solution for them. Like it's not, it's not reaching them. It's not seeming like a, a, a solution that they actually would want. It's not adequate enough. Um, and so that's what ended up with how we started Finequity was through that process. That's great. Well, and I, I love two parts of that. One, people will, we hear it all the time. They're, oh, there's solutions for that. And they, what happens is like there may be one solution, but then there's still these gaps. Yeah. And the gaps actually could be massive chasms yeah. that individuals have to kind of navigate across. And there's there's still yet another solution that could help that individual. Um, it could be, you know, small business lending or access to credit or capital um, that have a lot of implications. And so I love that you didn't, number one, when somebody said, oh, there's solutions, it just take that and, okay, great, we don't need to worry about that. But we love we love human centered design. Mm-hmm. We actually one of the books we require people to read is uh, either Designing for Change or Creative Confidence is like a big book for us, and um, we can put that in the show notes. But it's it's all about human centered design. I remember one example in there, uh, the D school. Uh, they talked about the person that originally designed the MRI machine for 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 usage. They got all the way through production, millions of dollars to produce these machines, and they didn't actually talk to any patients so this machine does it it works but it's like going into a cave and so if you've ever been in an mri machine it's just like 
it's terrifying. And so imagine using that on children. So now they had to come up with this whole way to create an experience for young people to use this machine they'd already spent millions of dollars to produce instead of at the beginning designing that. So it was one of those examples of like, what if we had started with, hey, we we have a product, Mm -hmm. an idea. What does it actually, how does it impact people? How do they experience it? Does it create, you know? Good feelings, bad feelings, anxiety. Yeah. Um, and so I love like uh, the focus groups. I'm glad. I'm glad Robin Hood Foundation is, is doing that, um, because I think that's what I love about um, things like the Reconstruct Challenge, where it's like, hey, I'm not coming and projecting an idea. I'm saying, here's a problem. I think we're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Who has good ideas? What are the things we're not seeing? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and going from there. So, yeah. well, you mentioned one thing I was curious about. Um, Earlier, you were talking about, you know, FinEquity is, is addressing the issues of credit. I'm curious, obviously, um, the financial system related to people that are um, justice impacted is, is more than just credit. Uh, are you planning to or thinking about or exploring, like, what are other, because I, I was reading uh, an article in our, or I heard an NPR st- story recently in Kentucky alone that inflation is hitting the prison systems uh, hard because they have uh, their own canteens where yeah. people go and buy goods to mm-hmm. just survive, like deodorant. So deodorant that I might pay a dollar twenty-five for at a Kroger costs four dollars and fifty cents inside the prison system, and there's no other choice. It's not like they're shopping around. There's a monopoly system, right? There. Right. Yeah. And then when they might work and get paid, um, whatever type of work program there might be, they're getting. 30, 50, 75 cents an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how do you see the work of inequity or, you know, just your own personal mission related to kind of helping the justice impacted? What is What are some other things that we should be thinking about and addressing as a society as it relates to helping move people from the justice system back into society? And um, I'd just love to hear you talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and that's like, it's, exci- it's like such an exciting question for us because, um, I think our work has shown that there's so much that could be done. Uh, and for us, and specifically for like, from my perspective, I'm just the question, it's it's a question with us and our board, which is like, where do we fit? Because I don't know that we can, they're, they're really so like- So many problems. <laughs> it's just a surface. So I'll just like give a couple examples. So definitely within the prison facility, just that alone. Cause you know, our first vision, I will acknowledge um, people, uh, like we'll say, hey, we have this micro loan that we do now. And one thing that I didn't specify is that it's for people who are coming home because our original vision is that we wanted to lend to people who were incarcerated. We wanted mm-hmm. to start really early, start pairing um, in prison at financial like literacy and knowledge around predatory actors with micro loans that can help people establish uh, credit um, before they got out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was our original vision. We're still working on that original vision, so it hasn't gone away. It's just it was hard to operationalize because you'd have to fight both through like the financial regulatory part and the prison regulatory part, which is how could we uh, be in compliance with both laws and operation like operationally do that, knowing that the prison systems are like you know state based and they're all different. Um, and so we we're still on that lane, but we started we decided we wanted to start and start with people who were outside and, and establish and then start working our way inside. And so we we offer the in prison literacy now in New York State as one kind of piece to that uh, because we've been wanting to go in earlier because it really does 
have an impact to start people. You know, just our current reentry system in most states, uh, the best they do is to say they start people preparing for outside like a year before. A lot of them say that on policy. But what that looks like is not really supporting people because a lot of people are getting resources inside that is information that once they get out is like no longer relevant um, or, you know, they they need actually more time to even get documents. Um, so there's like a lot of, uh, of opportunity even while people are inside. And so like you said, one example is that people are managing their finances while they're inside. They have to. They are budgeting. Uh, they get. Uh, slips that detail their monthly expenses, how much they have in their their account. Some of them are working, uh, actually have savings. We have many people who come out and tell us, yeah, I came out and I had to transfer the, the prison money I had made onto a card. And because, you know, the card that I was provided was like a predatory card that was marketed to me once I left, you know, some of that I, I lost a portion of that coming out, um, but I used that for my first, you know, maybe I used it to get my first secured card or I used it to get back and forth to my first employment. Like in that journey alone, there's just a number of like potential interventions that could help people, um, you know, for example, start maximizing those savings, right? Uh, you know, start, if they're already doing it, again, starting with people, <laughs> what they're already doing and maximizing like what they're doing. So there's like a savings element there. There's like a, um, again, an opportunity to establish like credit and like, or at least opportunity to establish some kind of reputation of this person is paying, for example, they pay off their, uh, you know, if they owe debt to the canteen, they pay that off. So there's that. And people are sometimes also paying bills while they're incarcerated. Um, so there's just there's 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 a lot. And I think for us, um, we're trying to listen. And that's where we're going to head next. Uh, and so the way that we're doing that, instead of like, I can strategize and I can look at the market and I can like <laughs> do because I've been I've been in touch with the for-profit fintech side, right? So mm -hmm. we keep up with them to understand like where they're moving, where the technology is moving, what's possible. I like to keep up with them because I, I never want anybody to tell me an idea is not feasibly possible because I could just turn to the private sector and say it is. They built that for their community because they wanted them to be able to maximize their savings or be able to invest or do all these things. So if it's possible over there, then that means it's possible over here. So that's that's kind of like why I keep up with them. Um, but for us, and we're good, that, that type of analysis would never help Finequity decide what it's going to do. We want to have talked to the people who are actually like our community members. And so um, what we're doing is building out our kind of stakeholders, right? So for example, one of our like pending stakeholders is, if for anyone who follows the justice system, there's a uh, prison in Connecticut um, called the True Unit. It was sponsored by the Vera, Vera Institute. It's the first run, uh, first prison that actually the program decisions are made by the people who are incarcerated. Um, and people who are incarcerated make a lot of decisions around what pr what's programming there uh, and, and a lot of like basically policies. Um, and it was an attempt, like a pilot, to attempt like what would happen when you gave more agency to the people who were currently inside the facility and what would happen after that. So we're in talks with them to think about, okay, what might be a unique financial uh, solution that Finequity can bring to the table in partnership with them. So that's how we're kind of like pushing out our vision. We want to, we want to, there's too many things possible now. There's there's too many problems that have like now become we've become aware of that people weren't like 
uh, uneven understanding, like from the incarcerated experience to release, there's like just like too many points. And so we really want to be like, okay, where's the where's the place we should go? And we're going to listen to people to be like, hey, if they say you should come here and work on this and bring your kind of expertise that you guys have to this problem. That's what we're going to do next. Um, the last thing I'll say about that is to me, it's been um, I've been really listening a lot to the concerns around debt, which is one of the hardest issues. But it's 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 uh, it's really damaging. <laughs> um, so we're thinking about how that's where we're we're kind of starting to dip our toe as we're talking to partners. We're also dipping our toe to see to hear to see and hear what are the unique ways that the debt can be addressed because you have this you you have this more complicated debt story from the criminal justice system, which is like yes, they have a student loan just like I have a student loan. I also suffer from having a student loan. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and having to deal with like the interest of that student loans. Um, luckily for right now, we're in you know a good space of, of of pause. But I have that, so they've got that. They've got that student loan. But in addition, they've got debt that is criminal justice specific, where it's like um, we have one client who has forty k in child support debt just because he's been away. It's been accruing, and it was due, you know, all of it due upon release. And the consequence of him not being able to pay that 40000 upon release was that they would seize and freeze any kind of a financial instrument he had, even the $100 he had in his bank account that he had saved up upon his release. Um, and it's still frozen to this day. He's been out for um, more than nine months, and it's still frozen to this day. Um, so it's like that, that type of debt operates different from my student loan debt. My student loan debt won't freeze all my bank accounts if I don't pay it off. Like it's so much more vicious. And I think that um, justice impacted people are dealing with more vicious debt collectors than, than uh, non-impacted people are. Uh, and so we're trying to see if we can join that space, what is the solution? Uh, what what are the options there? And you know, could Fed Equity bring something interesting to the table? But that's still an open, open question. Yeah. Well, again, I think it goes back to that human-centered approach and in working with justice-impacted populations, you have to first see them as a human. Mm -hmm. And I think that's oftentimes, we dehumanize people that have been a part of the justice system. Uh, even beyond the point where they've potentially served their time and paid their quote-unquote debt uh, as it relates to incarceration, we still, as a society, put on their shoulders like, well, you deserve it. Like, that's not a big deal. Or like, so what? And it's just... At what point does that stop? <laughs> At what point do we help these individuals uh, get back into society so that they're not repeat offenders and yeah. back in the system and that vicious cycle? So I, I love, I love the fact that you're staying rooted in in kind of what you are trying to do with inequity and in the community in which you're serving, because you're right. I mean, in the tech space specifically, it was like oh, scale and. What's the next big thing? And I think sometimes you 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 lose sight of what you're actually trying to do. And there's so many different things you could probably do that would be helpful, but then to what end? You know, all of a sudden your your team's burned out. So we were talking about PTO earlier. You're like everybody's exhausted. You're not really serving the population that you said you were trying to serve. And so, like, what does it look like to actually have growth at a point and at a, at a rate that actually meets the needs of the people you're trying to serve? Um, I think that's 
that's really encouraging. Um, which I mean, honestly, I don't even know if we said, but Finequity is a nonprofit. Yeah. So talk to me about that decision. You yeah. know, the you know, your background in tech and different things. Like there's probably a little a couple of different pathways you could have gone. How did you come to the decision to make this a nonprofit? And then kind of as you uh you know, wrap that up. I'd love to know how could people get involved? So as a nonprofit art, do you take volunteers? How do people actually interact with Finequity on, on the uh, community side? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I'm going to answer the question and I'll just come back to the, one of the last things you said about uh, the, the human humanization yeah, point, which is that I think it, it impacts the people as well. Cause one of the reasons why we, you know, uncovered an invisible problem is because when we would have focus groups of people, they tell us that the reason why they're not like, you know, making a big deal about this or saying, oh, this is frustrating. It's because they thought it was by design. Hmm. Like they were like, yeah, it's it's frustrating. I think people are trying to make, th- like this is what they wanted. Like this uh, this difficult process is, you know, that I'm going through is like what people actually intended. So I'm not gonna, you know, I've got 12 things on my plate. I'm not gonna make a hoopla about this because this, it, oh, that's I have no reason like to question that this, it seems like it's a So you're saying that the, the justice impacted populations feel like this was intentionally designed into the system some of them when it's like because you know some people are in advocacy mode sure. so they'll so they'll come up and be like no i did i did complain about it because i thought it was wrong mm. you know i thought it was wrong and i want to say something about it some other people might be like i thought it was wrong but you know what i'm looking for a job and i'm mm. going to focus on looking for a job but we there were definitely people who were like i just thought that this was part of it yeah part of part of this like yes you know, uh, they don't want to give an opportunity to me based on my experience. This is why this is difficult. Like, that's what happens when we design policies and programs poorly. People really assume that everything was designed with intention and that they shouldn't actually speak more up about it and be like, this is not great. This is, this is, this is a problem. This is, it shouldn't be happening. That type of thing. I think uh, people feel disempowered because they're like, people must have thought this through. Because why would they do this is the question. So I'll just say that. But I'll no, I appreciate that. That's, <laughs> That's great context. Yeah. Like how did how did you come to establish it as a nonprofit? And, yeah. and then how do people get involved? And, and one thing is that it, we lucked out on that because sometimes when we talk to people who would be um, supporting us, they'll be like, you're a nonprofit. And we're like, yes. And they're like, good. Because I think if this was a for-profit, it'd be pretty icky. <laughs> and I'm Which like, probably true. I'm like, That's true. But that wasn't that wasn't our initial uh, thought. Um, uh, that people would respond in that way. I think that the initial thought was that, um, one, I'll say more collaborative, uh, inf- so, you know, nonprofit is just like a legal kind of like infrastructure thing, more collaborative uh, types of infrastructure like co-ops and things like that. Honestly, we haven't made it as easy for people to create that. It's actually a hard journey. That's why a lot of for-profits usually will, you know, just easily become a corp because they're like, let's make it simple. And then a lot of people will be like, let's easily become a nonprofit to make it like simple. Starting a nonprofit and managing a nonprofit is actually extremely difficult. And we didn't know that. I knew the legal side of it. So one of the decisions was that we would become a nonprofit because, uh, you know, because I was at the table, it's like, hey, we can handle this. We can we can make it happen. And one, we wanted more control. So the decision around, once we went into the nonprofit space, we were like, should we become our own nonprofit or be under another nonprofit? Uh, because I, at the time, we wanted to be able to, again, leverage capital, donated capital to create wealth assets for our community. 
Um, and so we didn't think through and think about how, um, one, how there could be a business model. So then there was no kind of focus on like, let's become a profit because the idea was like, we don't want our direct, like actual people coming home paying for this service. Uh, we want it shifted somewhere else. And so we're not going to organize our as a for-profit because the question is, one, I think, again, I think for-profits have become just like, you know, when people say for-profits, they're not even talking about small business anymore. It's just really startups that are then going for venture capital. And you have to be able to convince those venture capitalists that you're going to make return off of that money. And the question is, where is that money coming from? <laughs> and for us, we were like, we, you know, we can be honest and say justice impacted people come from all different economic backgrounds. So some of them coming out can't afford to pay for services. But there are some who, like I said, like a client that was living in the shelter, he was working, but um, we wouldn't want to put that pressure on him, uh, you know. And so the question was, like, how can we take the cost and shift it somewhere else? And so we started with nonprofits just because we were like, okay, we want to uh, think strategically about who is paying for what. Uh, and because we feel like we're, you know, thinking about this, the, the justice side of this, one, one element I didn't speak about is that we come at this from saying, yes, we all cared about the justice system, but we think that the prison system plays a big role in the racial wealth divide. And so by saying we're going to pull in donated capital from um, you know, financial institutions and, and, and uh, other places, we, we feel like it's saying this capital should be used and brought from somewhere else to help these community members because this prison system is kind of uh, expanding the racial wealth divide. Uh, so let's do some corrective methods to push capital over. So that's one, one reason. Uh, the, the, the reason why we became a nonprofit, an independent nonprofit, is because we were doing financial stuff and operating under another nonprofit didn't give us the control we needed to actually control and have um, uh, a lot of flexibility on how we could use the funds. We had had, we weren't a nonprofit officially, we were just fiscally sponsored when we first started. We just were like, let's get get started, get fiscally sponsored so we could start collecting donations because people wanted to donate to us. Um, and one of the things that they told us was like, hey, we're not sure you're gonna be able to like distribute capital like you want to send money inside to you know some of the facilities or you know prison facilities or you want to be able to do this and they're like we're not sure we're comfortable with that we're not sure if that's going to comply with the IRS you know all those things we're not sure because we're not the IRS and we're like we need the control to be able to make these decisions of what we want to do and if we want to ask the IRS does this sound charitable we want to be able to do that so that's when we became an independent nonprofit. Um, and so that was our thinking. Uh, the last thing I'll say about that is that uh, whether we start to change our model in the future is where my lawyer hat comes in, which is like <laughs> we became a nonprofit, but that doesn't mean we can't transition into more, uh, you know, a community controlled model. It doesn't mean that we can't, uh, if we find a business model that is works underneath our nonprofit, that we can't erect a business model underneath our nonprofit. To me, um, there's so many opportunities that can um, be erected based on like where we're headed and where our vision is. And that idea of like what we incorporated as, as a nonprofit can always change. It will be a costly process, but we might find reasons in the future where we're like, hey, we found a reason why we need to be more community controlled. Let's change this model. Totally possible. Yeah. Um, anything is possible. And I think that to me, having the nonprofit as like the lead entity 
does protect us. That's my personal opinion from a lot of outside influence. Um, and even our board, um, we get asked for like, you know, offer, offered like potentially like people to get on our board. Um, and one of the provisions of our advisory board, our, our direct board of directors, is that justice impacted people need to be at the board. And there's a specific percentage that we put into our bylaws in regards to like representation. And so we won't just say like, hey, anyone who wants to be. Yeah. <laughs> or like, you know, if you come from this, you know, industry, like you can be in it. It's like, no, we we actually do the control of where the, the inequity is headed needs to be limited in some way. Um from like undue influence. And so I think that's why we ended up at nonprofit. It was one of our ways to say it opens up opportunities for the future, but it controls um, the influence for right now. And I appreciate that long-winded way of- No, I honestly, it, it resonates. I mean, people that might've heard before, like AV, Access Ventures is a, is a nonprofit. I think a lot of people get confused over what that means. And like you said, I mean, it's a legal designation. It's It still is a business. And it has to run profitably. Oftentimes it's off donations. And so it's, but it's an intentional decision that you have to make about what are you trying to do in the world? But you can still even launch non, uh, for-profits. We, we had a guy that worked for me for eight years, ran our micro lending program, partnered with Kiva, helped bring that to multiple communities. And then we did a design sprint around what are some of the problems still within the capital space for small businesses in America. And he built a technology product that we incubated, got a grant to fund the development for, and realized, oh, this is actually a scalable technology. And so now it's a for-profit outside of our organization and has customers in 30 states. You know, And so like to your point, and I, and I love that you said that because I think sometimes people are like, what, you do, you do what? You're trying to do what? And yeah. so that's super helpful context, so. Yeah, I think the strategy is important. And then again, making people aware of those strategies because then they'll be like, oh, I didn't know all those options were on the table. There are options on the table. And <laughs> they, when they make sense, they will make sense. If they don't, like you said, like you had a great year, like that's a viable business. Okay, don't yeah. don't put pressure on like, you know, something that should be a nonprofit to be a viable, like <laughs> exactly. uh, yeah. if, it's, if it just needs to like be sustainable in regards to pulling in donations, because we get, we do get pressure or people are like, what is your sustainability plan? You need a sustainability plan. And I'm like, yes, but that doesn't mean that we need to be like, you know, now come out with like a pricing plan. Like exactly. we can, we, we can think that through and find out what might, if there is something that we build that we think has appropriate pricing plan, we will, we will wreck that. We'll mm -hmm. figure out how to do that, and we'll put that out. And what's I mean, and honestly, uh, some some things need to be philanthropically supported. Yeah, and that's okay, and that's part of a sustainability plan. So you're yeah. telling me sustainability can't be corporations and and large foundations shouldn't support this because yeah. it's good work and and that you know you can't monetize like. I think that's part of sustainability. <laughs> yeah, I, I think people are siloed. I think people are siloed. It's, so it really depends on who I'm talking to. When I'm talking to like a lot of uh, like for-profit people, they don't understand that there are a lot of nonprofits that have achieved financial sustainability plan for a really long time. And they got it however long it took them is, is their own journey. But um, some, non they're, like all nonprofits are different, but there's some that have really strong sustainability plans. They have a mix of donations. Their, their budgets are huge, to be honest. Yep. Um, some might even say, like for people who believe in like, the nonprofit industrial complex, a little too huge yeah, <laughs> um, in regards to how much capital. <laughs> so I, I and I, I understand, I, I understand where they're coming from too. So I'm very critical of it, but uh, depending on what it is, but 
um, they they reached financial sustainability. It depends on who you're talking to. Do they know about those models? If they don't, they're going to say, "Sorry, no, no. You got to think about you got to think about your pricing plan, or think about your like, you know, what can you all these other things that because they don't know the other side of that. And then same thing for the nonprofits. Some nonprofits don't even think about how they could might erect something that has like a viable business plan because they're just thinking, "Hey." We always go after uh, philanthropic funds and we never really go after anything else. So they don't know that side. Um, And I think one of the great exposures that I've I've had is to be exposed to a lot of it. So I'm like, when I talk to either a board or a team, I'm like, there are so many options Mm -hmm. on the table, which I think all innovators should really be coming from that perspective. I love it. Well, it sounds like you and I could talk a long time. I think one thing I would would say about you, Brianna, is like you are intentional. Yeah. Like it's it's neat to see from the focus group formation to the decisions you're making. They are strategically and intentionally made, which mm-hmm. is awesome. Mm-hmm. So I guess in in my my final question, going out, what inspires you right now? What 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 inspires you today as yeah. you think about you know your role, your your life, your community your work what's inspiring you yeah um no it's 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 the conversations we get we get because uh, i am like intentional i'm a little too intentional. i'm a little too type a um <laughs> and so i have to watch that too because i'm a little i'm a little too like everything's like i'm thinking through and i'm strategizing so i'm trying to find a mix of like enjoying the experience and also like thinking strategy but we get outreach every time we do a new move we get outreach to like a new partner um uh and that's always exciting because then it makes it seem like somebody is saying hey we want to work with you to actually make a connection to what we're doing and supporting what we're doing um and i'll also connect this to the question you asked before which is how can people get involved i love that people want to get involved i think that we're so small that we try to like figure out how best to do that because we definitely um you know are our smaller capacity but i will say that the exciting news is that we're launching our first volunteer program, oh, there you our go. pilot of a first volunteer program this fall. We'll be having like a volunteer orientation in September. Um, we had brought on a staff member to take on a number of, of areas, but one of them was to deal with the fact that we have people who are really interested in our work. And at the time we were so small that we were like, we we just have to get the work done. We don't we don't necessarily have the capacity to like uh, see how pe- other people can get involved. And we finally have that. We finally have that. So that's exciting. Um, and so that's one way to get involved. We'll we'll be we'll be orienting volunteers throughout the fall uh, and many different ways to get involved in our our uh, um, the work we're doing. Whether it's from like copywriting to kind of actual client support to web, we have a, a lot of web developers who've reached out lately. So we're again trying to gear up things for them. And then um, we do some in-prison correspondence work. So we're looking for people to support the in-prison correspondence work we do. Um, but yeah, I'm just I kind of like. I've always been like driven. If anybody like talks about me, like if you talk to my mother, she'd be like, Brianna is driven. And that's just one like asset that I think I, a privilege I have. So I just have to watch out because that leads to not resting. Cause I'm always just getting up like, let's do this. What do we have to do? <laughs> and I need to take a step back and be like, actually, can you take a beat or can you actually take a walk or can you rest? Because you actually don't need to like rush or strategize right now. You can just like, B. B. Uh, and so that's my journey right now, which is like, how do I balance the two? Because I am really strategic and that's really great and it's always going to be an asset. But I don't, that's not always needed. That's not always the thing that is required to be at the table. So, um, like, finding ways to like plug in and then like trust that other people can bring a different approach that's not that. 
Um, and so I'm currently I'm inspired by my own like personal journey around. Well, I'm glad your balancing. mom's inspiring you to do that too. I love I'm that. hoping your your board is encouraging that as well because yes. you know we need you to do this work for the long haul. Yeah, <laughs> not burn out. So, yeah. well, thanks for your time, and I'm sure also people can get involved uh, through financially supporting the work that you're doing as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Uh, as a nonprofit, I'm sure if people want to get involved, that's always a great way to do it as well. Yes. Thanks for your time. Thank you. To learn more about FinEquity and stay up to date with their progress, check out finequity.org. And if you'd like to learn more about the Reconstruct Challenge and other recipients, please check out reconstructchallenge.com. And while you're there, if you'd like to explore designing your own Reconstruct Challenge to identify and fund early and innovative interventions to some of your community's most pressing challenges, there are ways on the website to learn about partnership. As always, thanks for listening and stay up to date by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, drop us a review so others can find us as well. More Than Profit is a production of Access Ventures. Direction, design, and editing is done by our friends at Render, a public benefit innovation studio in Louisville, Kentucky. To learn more about their work, check out workwithrender.com. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Thanks for listening.